Famed philosopher Alfred North Whitehead writes, quote, the European philosophic tradition is but a series of footnotes to Plato. And by this, what Whitehead means is that all Western thought, from the time of Plato until the present, bears the markings of Plato's influence. That whether we realize it or not, Whitehead is saying, our view of things, our understanding of things, our very conception of reality is in some way influenced by Plato. Well, that is, of course, high praise. Here's why I bring it up this morning. I bring it up this morning because it is true. But more than that, I bring it up this morning because in its being true, it has had adverse effects on traditional Christian theology. Now, I say this with much admiration for Plato. In fact, this past week, in preparation for this sermon, I reread several of Plato's dialogues, and in so doing, was reminded anew of just how remarkable Plato as a thinker really was. That said, however, the point of this sermon will be to highlight how Plato's thoughts about immortality, that is, about how Plato's philosophical teachings about the human hope for life after death, the point of this sermon will be to highlight how Plato's thoughts on these things ultimately got mixed up with Christian thoughts about them, and how soon enough Plato's philosophy completely overtook and then completely obscured the traditional claims of the Judeo-Christian faith. The net result being catastrophic to our understanding of our ultimate hope as Christians and to what it therefore means for us to be disciples of the resurrected Jesus. And so having said that, let me read to you now some very familiar words from the Bible. And then immediately following that, let me read you some other words, these from Plato's famous dialogue, the Phaedo. Sound good? You know you came here wanting to hear some Plato this morning. Okay, here are the words from the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw that everything he had created was very good. That's, of course, Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that he had created and that it was very good. Okay, hear now these words from Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, written sometime in the late 4th century BCE. If ever we are to know anything purely, we must first get rid of the body, the material, and only then examine the real things by the soul alone. Only after death will the soul be quite by itself, apart from the body, that is, the material, 
And only there, pure and rid of the body's foolishness, that is, pure and rid of the material, pure and rid of the created, only then and there shall we be in the company of those like ourselves, and only then and there will we know complete incontamination. Only upon death do we go away yonder to the pure and everlasting and immortal and unchanging. Only there. And there I will stop. Now I hope you already begin to see the tension between these two perspectives. In the first, the biblical account, that which God created is originally deemed good. The material is good. The body is good. The earth and the animals and the natural wonders and the entire cosmos, all of it, good. And not just good, very good. And Plato, however, the material is bad. The body is bad. All of the wonders visible to the naked eye, bad. And not just bad, mind you, but evil. For the material world is inherently antagonistic for Plato to that which he calls the good. And thus, for Plato, the chief endeavor of human life is to prepare the soul for reunion with the good. That is, to prepare the soul for a flight to an abstract reality that exists somewhere else, somewhere off in some ethereal realm, some other place completely devoid of physicality. You still with me? I see your eyes beginning to glaze over. So let me try to pull us out of the weeds here. The salient point I'm trying to make is this. Gang, there is all the difference in the world in the ancient foundational Judeo-Christian teaching that prior to the corruption of sin entering the world, that the world and all therein was good that this physical, material creation was good, there is all the difference in the world between this teaching and the Platonic teaching that the world is inherently bad. And lest we recognize from the outset that difference, and lest we be able to distinguish which one is the Christian conception and which one is not, we will be easily confused as Christians about what God's ultimate intentions are for redeeming this good world God created. And with that, we will be easily confused as Christians about what the resurrection of Jesus really means for us as Christ's disciples. Now, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I promise I will try to put a little more flesh on it in just a moment. For now, though, I want to shift gears and I want to turn from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of it. That is, to the book of Revelation. 
And here at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the earliest Christian hopes spelled out as St. John describes his future vision like this, and I quote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Do you hear that? Coming down, not going up. And then I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. Do you hear that? He will dwell with them, just like in the beginning. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them, and death will be no more. For the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Dear family, this at the very end of the Bible, this is the foundational Christian hope. Not that in the end redeemed humanity will disembark a bad world, but rather that through a remarkable, miraculous act from without, that God will redeem this present world, and in so doing will resurrect redeemed humanity to eternal life in and upon this redeemed world. Do you follow that? Put more simply still, the traditional Christian hope has always been this, that the way of heaven will one day infuse and fully transform the present creation and ourselves along with it. Not that we ourselves will one day leave the present creation far behind. And thus the point of this first sermon in this four-week Advent series on the kingdom of God and on the traditional Christian hope the point of this first sermon is simply to say that while it is a vast oversimplification, nonetheless, were it not for Plato, none of this would sound even remotely surprising. For prior to Platonic philosophy infiltrating Christian thought, this is what all of the earliest Christians believed, professed, hoped for, and waited on. Not a flight from earth to heaven. Not an escape from a bad, corrupt world to a good, ethereal realm elsewhere. But instead, the full consummation of heaven on earth. And thus, when the earliest Christians said, Come, Lord Jesus, they didn't mean, Come, Lord Jesus, and take us out of here. They meant, come, Lord Jesus, and bring the fullness of heaven. They meant, come, Lord Jesus, and bring the future reality that your resurrection made possible. They meant, come, Lord Jesus, and the fullness of your kingdom. Y'all remember that prayer we pray together every Sunday, right? 
The one that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The one that says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, the entirety of the Christian hope exists right here in these 14 words. Oh God, bring your kingdom, bring the fullness of the kingdom of heaven here to reign on earth as you always intended. Oh God, let the very essence of heaven thoroughly infuse and transform this earth you created. Oh God, restore that which you created and deemed good at the first. Oh God, restore it to that goodness once more. That, dear family, in a nutshell, encompasses the entirety of the Christian hope. And so having said that, let me tell you now why I bring this all up today. Which is to say, while this is always of the utmost importance, obviously, let me tell you why I choose today to draw such particular attention to it. I draw such particular attention to it today because today is the first Sunday in Advent, the season in which we as Christians profess our eager anticipation for the coming of Christ. You see, the very word Advent itself comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And thus, Advent is a season, in fact, Advent is the season when we as Christ's church pay particular attention to our professed hope for Christ's coming. However, contrary to popular belief, the real coming Advent prepares us to be watchful for is not the coming of Christ at Christmas, though that is also important, but is instead the coming of Christ at the end of history in the fullness of his kingdom, that which his coming at Christmas points to. And so that then is what this four-week sermon series, and with it our Bible studies on Wednesday nights, that is what all of this will be about. It will be about closely examining what we as Christians mean when we talk about and when we claim to be eagerly waiting for the coming kingdom of God. And I promise you that the next three sermons in this series will not be as in the weeds and as theological as this one has been. I promise that these next three will include more stories and more illustrations. But it is paramount that before any of that, we first sufficiently front load all of this vital theological information. Because here during Advent, it is of central importance that we as Christians first understand 
what it is that we claim during Advent to be waiting for. And that leads me back to the whole discussion of Plato and to our reflection on how Plato's ideas eventually hijacked traditional Christian theology. You see, soon enough, and certainly by the Middle Ages, Greek philosophy, Hellenistic philosophy, had so taken Judeo-Christian theology captive that many, if not most, practicing Christians no longer thought of the coming of Christ as the return of the resurrected Jesus to reign over a redeemed world, but rather had come to think of the coming of Christ as the return of Jesus to blessedly remove them from the world. And family, we cannot overemphasize this enough this Advent season. That is not biblical. That is not traditional. That is not Jewish. That is not Christian. That is Plato. That is Greek philosophy. And if you're wondering why it matters so much, if you're wondering why we need to devote an entire sermon to it, let me return now to the distinction I tried to draw earlier. As you'll recall, I said earlier that unless we recognize from the outset the difference between the Platonic teaching and the traditional Christian teaching, that we will become easily confused as Christians about what God's ultimate intentions are for the good world God created and with it about what the resurrection of Jesus really means for us as Christ's disciples. You remember that? Well, let's return to that now and to a word on resurrection, to a word on what that means, and with it to the conclusion of this sermon. My dear family, there is all the difference in the world between the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul. For not only is one the Judeo-Christian hope and the other the Greek philosophical hope, but moreover, they have completely different and utterly irreconcilable understandings of the very nature of death itself. For from the standpoint of Greek philosophy and the immortality of the soul, death is ultimately a good thing. For sad though it might be for those of us who have to say goodbye, death nonetheless frees us from the fetters of the evil creation to which we have been bound all this time. So death from this perspective is a blessed thing. However, from the standpoint of Judeo-Christian theology and the hope of resurrection, death definitionally is an appalling horror. It is what C.S. Lewis calls, quote, a stinking indignity. For death is a destruction of that which God created and deemed good in the very beginning. Do you understand the difference there? The one is a complete disavowal of creation and its goodness. 
The other is the total and utter redemption of it. And thus to believe as Christians that our great eternal hope lies in one day becoming spiritual essences removed from this present creation, well, that has nothing to do with resurrection. Because resurrection is about bringing back to life that which was heretofore dead. Because resurrection definitionally is about the complete reversal of death. That's what John is writing about in Revelation chapter 21 when he says death will be no more. He's not talking about the human soul shackling off the shackles of the body and becoming immortal. He's talking about resurrected humanity being reconstituted and alive forevermore. And while I know this all sounds very abstract and very theoretical. Here's what this difference means, practically speaking, and pay very close attention here, because this points us to where the rest of this sermon series is going. Practically speaking, what this means is this. When we believe that our great eternal hope lies in one day becoming spiritual essences removed from this present creation. It then follows that what we do here now, amid and upon this present creation, doesn't really matter. Follow? Because in this view, it and we won't be resurrected. Because in this view, death and the bondage of creation won't ever be reversed. Because instead, in this view, the good part of ourselves, the real part of ourselves, will simply pass on to some formless place elsewhere. Which necessarily means that what we do here then doesn't really matter. That's ultimately what the Greek philosophy of the immortality of the soul means. That's ultimately, if you trace it to its logical conclusion, that's how it cashes out. However, and follow me so closely here, gang. However, to believe as Christians that our great eternal hope lies in God one day redeeming this present creation, redeeming it from the outside in and from the inside out, And with it to believe that our great eternal hope lies in being brought back from death to life, brought back to eternal life upon a redeemed and restored and altogether good creation. Well, when we believe that, it then follows that what we do here now amid and upon this present creation matters immensely. Because in this view, this present creation and we along with it, subject to bondage though it and we now are. Because in this view, the traditional Christian view, all that we ourselves then do here now, amid and upon this present creation, 
becomes part of the raw material out of which God will one day refashion the new. That, my dear family, is what resurrection is. It is God refashioning the new, revivifying the new, reconstituting the new out of the substance of the old. That is resurrection. And so in closing, my dear family, let us understand this Advent season that when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, let us understand that this is what we mean. That we mean hasten the coming day, O God, when we in these small daily kingdom acts we perform will, like your son Jesus, be transformed and transmogrified by the power of resurrection. Let us understand that this is what we mean when we pray those words. And thus this Advent season, when we cry out with the Christian church worldwide, Come, Lord Jesus. Let us be well aware that this is what we mean with our cry. Not that we are crying for Jesus to come and take us away from here to God's ethereal realm elsewhere. That's Plato. But instead that we are crying for Jesus to come and bring the fullness of God's heavenly kingdom here. That is Christianity. Yes, this Advent season, let us understand that in the end, this is the great Christian hope. That in the end, this is the meaning of resurrection. And that in the end, through the power of resurrection, even death itself will become but a footnote in the grand story of God's creation and redemption of all things. And so we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.